for Bob and Suzanne. Yeah, I, I'm really asking for your prayers a lot. Um, what's going through my head is what's impossible for us is impossible for God. So we, I just turned it on, Doc. I think it's, I think it's working. You can check this. Here, can you say hello to somebody here before we start? Hey, everybody. Sorry we kept, sorry we kept you waiting. Thank you. Thank you for your patience, Carl. <laughs> oh, what do you what do you say about stubborn scientific minded people like this? God, pray for them. Just hey, just 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 so you know, for the last what, four and a half, five days, Suzanne has spent ninety percent of the day in the kitchen cooking breakfast, getting lunch, cooking dinner. God, I mean and then I, I mean, you all know these stories, so... Um, but, but, Bob, you had kids. We were younger, Mark. God. <laughs> we were, wait, hold on. Let me rephrase that. We were younger and more stupid. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> um, we were young. I'm so aware of this. I mean, I look at our kids right now, and I just... You know, th this is their seventh. They, they had eight. They had, everybody had a miscarriage, but they treat the one they lost as if it's... An actual child, so, and I, I look at the, and they're not young right now, you know, they're not, they're not young, um, and I look at this and I just shake my head, <laughs> you know, we, we, we lived in California and we had four kids, and four kids in California was like fifteen in Texas. I mean, Californians look at us as if there was something wrong with us, you know. Californians live for themselves, for a couple to have four kids meant you were out of your mind. Um, I just look back in amazement. Um, and the world has so changed, you know, you all know that. It's just a very different world. So, anyway, we're worn out. <laughs> we are worn out. But I'm, it's good to see you guys. Um, I'm, was, I was looking forward to finishing this play, and I feel discombobulated right now, but let's let's see what we can do. Okay, any any prayer requests from you guys? We've heard some for some people. Um, some people can't make it, and um, lots is going on in people's lives right now. But let's start in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, for the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning. It was such a pleasure having the kids at Mass. Um, an even greater pleasure to say the rosary with them last night, to see, just to let you guys know, I mean, in their family they're saying the rosary every Saturday night, and they, each of the kids takes a turn at a, at a decade, and... Um, they did it last night. I was just shocked, you know, to see these kids that can't stop all day long and then suddenly slow down for a prayer. And they didn't go through it rotely. I was um, a little bit overwhelmed to listen to the kids do this. For the prayers last night, for the Mass this morning, um, for all the goodness that we know around us, um, even with the cross at the center of it, um, thank you, Lord. I ask for a blessing on everybody involved here. <laughs> this group has some real powers of endurance. All of them or they wouldn't be here. 
um, um, surround everybody here present with your blessings. Um, whatever's going on in our life, help us to stay open to you, to do your will. The words in the Mass this weekend were, God, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Help each of us to carry those words genuinely through the day. It would be good to say them once in a while. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Here I am. Um, let all that we do be an offering to you. Help us to do that, please. Um, sometimes against even the better part of us. Um, I ask a special blessing on all those that we carry in our hearts. Special blessing for Aim, um, Emily and Jonathan and their new baby, Aiden. Um, help Emily get rest, keep the baby um, healthy, and help Jonathan <laughs> help Jonathan hold on. Um, we are grateful for this time together. Help us to have quiet hearts bring light to our mind in all that we do through this night. We are grateful for this time. Amen. Um, I'm just going to touch on a couple of things from the libation bears because I want to I get into the humanities. Um, it's, it's the conclusion of a work and you know that something happens in the middle of um, the libation bears to turn the whole trilogy. So let me let me just try to put this in perspective if I can. Um, the Oresti is going to conclude in the Humanities. The last play deals with a transformation. The whole purpose of our class is to find Christ. This is a pagan world that comes before him. So <laughs> what in the world are we doing here? In the middle of the libation bears, Orestes, who's like Hamlet, he's doesn't quite know what to do. He's um, so bright, so intelligent. He's a young kid. He's really brave. He's lost his father. His mother has killed his dad. He's got to avenge that death. He's got this light from Apollo, and he knows he has to do this. And the prospect is daunting. Doesn't even do justice to what he's facing the horror of taking the life of the woman who gave you birth. So we all know that in the, in the middle of that play, um, something happens. It, it exactly corresponds to what we know as the taking of the auspices. It's an omen is given, a prophecy is given, a light, a light is given. And we know the importance of that because um, either we know it from ourselves or we know it from other people that Sometimes people feel that God's working in our lives and we're sure of it and um, sometimes we may be really off. People with vivid religious imaginations can imagine a lot of things that aren't real. The ancient world knew that. Our church knows that. The church does not recognize a miracle that they can't confirm. So taking the auspices means confirming looking for a sign, something that can substantiate what appears to be a miracle, an omen, a prophecy. Orestes has been called to this divinely appointed task. We're in the world of Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. All of these ancient heroes experienced something from the gods. They had to do something 
it's happening here in the Orstaya. He doesn't know what to do and the, the libation bears, the chorus comes out to pour these libations to assuage um, Cleopatra, I mean, uh, Clytemnestra's guilt. She wakes up in the middle of the night and has this horrible dream. It's years past the time she killed her husband because sometimes that happens. Years later, after humans have done an awful thing, guilt takes hold of them and something happens. In the, in the middle of the night it does. She gets this dream about this viper um, biting her breast and um, and awakens and sends out the libation bears. And you know that when Orestes is out there and they're out there pouring their libations, the chorus describes the dream and at that moment Orestes knows that the omen is confirmed. So it's Clytemnestra's own words that will effectively bring about her death. What she says concerns it. So the Agamemnon, the Libation Bears, the Eumenides, there's this large action. Each play is sufficient to itself, but if you look at the whole tri trinity or the trilogy together, right at the center a word is given out of a dream. And it, it's, from Orestes perspective, it's a light given to confirm what he was asked to do but was uncertain about doing. And the whole action turns. Because from that moment forward he's going to carry out his task, he'll be overwhelmed by the Furies, you know, and then he'll set off for Apollo's um, temple and then finally to Athens. And the result of that action is the founding of Athens. That into this world will come a city that will have a greater regard for the integrity of individuals, the same thing we saw in the Iliad, except what's made much clear here is that this city who's been who's been given this sort of divine calling as a city will never be what it could be without the help of the gods. Because everything that we're going to read, everything that we'll look look at towards the end, you know, of of this of our work here, will make it clear that um, Athens will never be the city it was called out to be without loving the gods and having a fear for the gods. And you know that, I, I, I think I've said this before, that Aristotle says, I think in the metaphysics, that the, the, the beginning of wisdom is fear, a, a wonder and openness to things. And we know from the Old Testament that wisdom begins with the fear of the gods, fear of God. One of the signs of wisdom is fear of God. And I, by that, he, we know, we believe that the Old Testament readings does not mean a servile fear. It means a filial fear. It's the fear a son should have for his father or a god. Not servile. So, lots is happening that's actually going to change the course of history with this new kind of city coming into being. So we're looking at one of the most important founding works. It's really interesting. I meant to send you guys an email. I don't know if I did it. If I Did I send you on Amy's letter to me? The notes that she got that Harvard, some of the Harvard professors were overjoyed because they were getting support at getting rid of the Odyssey. I'll send it. 
Amy sent me a article that online about some Harvard teachers that wanted to get rid of the Odyssey. They're doing everything they can to get rid of classical literature, and that means Christian literature too, because they they believe that everything we've inherited from the past doesn't help us, and we've got to start anew. So there are all these people who want to start a revolution that are gleeful about getting rid, of, having support of getting rid of the Odyssey, and of course that would mean the Orstein. So. Just two quick comments. One is, at the center of the libation bearers was this moment. The other is, we know that the, um, that the great regard running through the libation bearers was for the Father. That um, there's a fundamental difference between father and mother, man and woman. And we talked about that, I'll, I'll get back to it again. But um, everybody in the play, Electra, the chorus, um, Orestes all lament the death of the father. If you take the father away, the lie discontinues. Um, and we, we, I mean, I would think all of us would be sort of sensitive to that because um, Catholics live basically in an anti-Catholic world. We live in a Protestant world, who, um, one of whose bases is doing away with the father. Um, that all of us are equal, that authority is equal, the authority in the, in the congregation depends on a vote, um, they don't recognize the Pope. I mean, there's lots of things going on in the culture that, um, that um, remind us of um, what's at stake here in the Oristion. Um, I wanted to just take one minute with this whole notion of inspiration because it, it, it's one you can read and pass over in the libation bear. You can read about that dream and keep going on and, and think nothing's happened when actually it's the turning point of the play. I want to stop for a moment. I'm assuming that all of us, maybe, maybe I shouldn't assume this, but I'm assuming that all of us have had moments. The, the time for my inspirations very often come in the morning when I'm showering because I'll stand in the shower forever and if I'm thinking about a class or, you know, I'll, I'll have something on my mind. And very often when I'm not writing, if I'm not pressing at something, hi Jolie, um, something will come to me. I mean, I, I'll be, it, it's often when I'm not pushing at things that I'll suddenly get a light. It's, it's an insight that will... I've been troubling over something, trying to make a connection between things, not getting it. Um, I mean, really struggling. If I'm writing a chapter and and I go to sleep on it, I'm not sleeping well, or that suddenly an idea will hit me. I'm assuming all of you have had experiences like that. Let me let me stay away from the word revelation, illumination. You know, any suddenly a light goes off, an idea comes. I want to take a minute. So what do you guys make of those things? Where do they come from? Because what's at the center of this trilogy is this moment of illumination. You can be at your job. You can call a meeting with everybody involved in the job. you got a problem. you got to face together. It can be a job. It can be a family meeting. The question that I'm asking is, I'm, I'm assuming that Assuming that all of us have moments when suddenly a light comes. My question, it's a very, very serious question for me. Where does that light come from? I'm asking it seriously. 
Bob. Yeah. I've shared with you that um, this class, all this, this classes have been um, um, a turning point for me. It's like I feel God's working through through all of you in, in, in this class, and it, I, it's illumination. It, it's illuminating. It's putting. It's bringing pieces together in my life that I, I'm not believing. I'm shocked all the time. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And okay. there's no doubt that it's a God. It's God. There's okay. no doubt. Okay. Because I was gonna. I was gonna get all over you. Because I was gonna say. Now stop saying. Tell me where it came from. But you got to it at the end. Anybody have a response to that? Be, because to me, it's you know, it's one of those things you, you can overlook. But but if you stop and say, where did that come from? Ask a scientist. Ask a scientist who believes in evolution, or you know, or, I mean, think. I mean, so the question is a serious one. Mark, go ahead. Did you have a response? I have a problem when somebody says, "Up, it came from God." Now, let me qualify. <laughs> Everything technically comes from God. God made you. He made your brain. He made your drive. He made your personality. Those gifts you use to give back to God. You know, so I'm not saying okay, but to me, you know. Like, you didn't want to use the word revelation or something. But, I mean, if God's going to call you, it's like Samuel in the reading, you know. There's no question. There's no doubt. There's no maybe it could have been something else. It's God called you, right? So I don't know if it's God putting that thought in your head or giving you the idea or whatever. Like you said, we've all had those moments where it clicks. To me, it's more... To me, to me, if God's going to call you, it's going to be big and special, and you're going to know. <laughs> Everything else is God working inside you, but he's allowing you to be good. He's allowing your brain to work. He created you. He gave you free will. He's seeing what you do with it, and hopefully you're using it for good, and every now and then, man, shit just works, right? And it's, that's, so, yes, it's technically God, you know, kind of go up the food chain a little bit, but... I don't know if I would call it divine intervention or something like that. I I, 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 I would push that. So here, let me push back before anybody else jumps in. Let me get let me get on Mark here. I, cause I look forward to these moments. I want to do all I can to beat this kid over the head. Um, Mark, wait, two things because I really want a response from him. One is because you mentioned uh, reading this weekend. One, is, I mean, wait. Wait, hold on, because this is one of the problems with the modern skeptic. I'm talking about the modern skeptic of mine now, right, okay? If I can put it in the background. The modern skeptic thinks that if God's going to do something, it's got to be cataclysmic. It's going to be one of these CG effects on... Because if, you, if you're aware of modern movies, you know that CG oh. can... Tsunamis and volcanoes and transformers and... Nothing can happen unless it's... And here, I'm being honest, unless it's on a titanic scale. So if God's going to do anything, it's going to be obvious and great. Okay? Now, Mark, wait, just hold on to yourself for a second. That's the modern skeptic. So the modern skeptic believes that um, all these things can be explained away. If God's going to come in, it has to be in some outrageous, obvious way. Okay? In the reading this weekend, it was not that way, even though you presented it that way. That's the way you presented it. It's not the way I read it. In the reading this weekend, <laughs> Samuel's called three times. So God speaks to him. Hold on, Mark. I want you to hear this because <laughs> what you do with these things. Samuel's called three times. He doesn't get it three times. God's not beating him over there. He called him three times. 
And the very last time, it wasn't some cataclysmic event. It wasn't some great thing. He goes to Eli, and because he thinks, because there he is. It's like a modern skeptic. He's not. I mean, it's, you know, the skeptical mind isn't particular to the modern world. It existed 3,000 years ago. He goes to Eli for the third time, and Eli says, finally irritated because he's not getting enough sleep, next time if you hear that voice, say, speak, Lord, your servants will see. And then there's nothing cataclysmic, absolutely nothing. He, stand, he says here, and, we, and the description is, and God came to him. What happens in that moment, we don't, there's not a CG effect that would be on a modern movie. God's with him somehow. What we know is that Samuel's going to go on to bless Saul, and he's going to go on to bless David. So, that this is so much like the Oristia, that nothing moment is actually going to change the course of history. It's going to lead to, I mean, he's going to be involved with Saul and then David and the line pointing towards Christ. So, um, so just to you know to offer another reading. But here, here's the here's the question that I have for you, Mark. If and I'm asking this seriously, I mean that's my response to what I take as <laughs> your exaggeration sometimes. But but here's the real question that I want to put to you: If God can come in in cataclysmic ways, you know, earth shattering and earth turning and life changing, why can't He come in in subtler ways? in these small little ideas that come to us sometimes when we're at work or in the shower, writing a paragraph, troubling over our family, and suddenly God something comes... whatever com- he wants, Bob. Sorry? Wait, hold on. Let me finish. You don't ask that question. <laughs> and so, so it can be in the family, you can be troubling over something, so it, it, it's not going to take this deus ex machina, which is, you know, God coming in with his great machine. It's nothing like that. It's these subtle moments, and yet they can be life-changing. So my question to you is, if, if, if I'm taking it from the way you frame that, that, that you seem to be thinking that if God's going to appear, it's going to be in this obvious sort of you know, earth-shattering way. If he could do that, why could he not appear in subtler, quiet... Remember, um, who was it? Elijah in the cave? waiting for this great wind and suddenly finds it in a whisper. If God can make himself present in dividing the Red Sea, is there any reason he could not um, appear to us in epiphanies, you know, in small and subtle ways that could have a real impact on our lives? So that's my, sorry, that's my question. Sorry for being so long. Of course you can, Bob. God can do whatever he wants. A good Catholic, you don't ask those questions. <laughs> Period. I must, must not be There's a good Catholic. There's certain things you just, you just don't go there. Uh, I can tell you're a convert. You didn't have a beating oh. when you were a kid. You don't ask those Somebody questions. help me here with this. Will guys help um, me? Um, absolutely, God can do whatever he wants. That's where I stand on it. But the fact that it might be God in the whisper, it also might not. Right. And that's okay, too. Yeah. I'm not a skeptic at all. Cradle <laughs> Catholic will die that way. But the issue is, is it might be God or it might not be. It might be God kicking you in the butt going, hey, you know, you need to do it yourself. Yeah. So yes. that's yeah. okay, too. Yeah. Remember I began, remember I began trying to qualify this to say that 
one of the reasons for the taking of the auspices is exactly that, that people can make claims about God all the time. The, the, the point that we're dealing with here is, you know, a taking of the auspices moment, but the question that I wanted to ask you is a, a pretty simple direct one. We often have these moments, you know, and um, you're right. I mean, I have the, I, a large part of my mind is skeptical. I don't know if you guys know that about me, but I, I, there's a big part of me that is very guarded about all of this stuff. So, but taking the auspices moment is not a small thing for me. It means we've got to be careful because sometimes in our pride, in our pride, we can too often make assumptions about God that we shouldn't. You know, the, the, but the point of my question was to ask a more sort of metaphysical question was, when these lights happen, when we experience them, because we do experience them as lights, and sometimes they really help. I know from my own life, very often when I'm troubling over the paper, the writing that I've done, you take my classes. If any of you have felt me make a connection, I think you did last week, Mark, because you said nothing happens. You know, and the point that I was making is that in this world in which nothing happens, a dream takes place and it turns the whole lower sty on its head. But very often we overlook things. One of the great gifts for me in my life as a teacher is to see the meaning of things that I can bring to students and say, but look, here's you know, here's this dream, it appears to me nothing, and yet and and I know over the course of my life that Whatever lights help me to make those connections leads me to this question, where do those lights come from? For all of us, I'm sure Fred has had them, I have no doubts. I'm sure um, Carl and Jeannie, I'm sure you had them, Mark, all of us, you know. And the, the whole, the, the interesting thing about the question is, we sort of take it for granted. You know, we go on and we're living our lives, we go to work, we come home, we, whatever our struggles are. But every once in a while, these lights come to us and we don't give them a thought. And I don't want to just leave it as we don't give them a thought. St. Augustine wrote a lot on this. He said his response was these moments of illumination, and you're going to have to test them, Mark. I mean, this take, the taking of the auspices is not, you know, it's not a, sometimes we're going to risk on them, and we're going to fall on our face because we realize we were wrong. But sometimes, they can be life-saving. St. Augustine called these moments, moments of illumination, that a light is given to us from the gods. The scientific world is not going to make a place for that because that's to go someplace where they can't go. You know, we're, we're in a more narrowly closed world, but um, we happen to be reading a play right now, a series of plays in which in the center of the whole trilogy, is this moment of illumination that turns the whole action, and it's going to lead to the founding of Athens. So it's it's. I don't want to just pass over this. A, a huge thing is happening here, and most of the time we don't have a language for it. I don't want to leave it that way. We have these moments. Sometimes, to to go to your point, Mike, I'm Mark. I'm absolutely convinced that there there's people who are mad who have these moments of illumination. The difference between genius and madness at that point, I, I, that's too fine for me. You know, trying to make a judgment on that, 
one of Plato's greatest dialogues is called the Phaedrus. And one of his claim it's one of his greatest dialogues. One of his claimness, one of his claims, most famous claims is love is a form of madness. That something is given by the gods and the rational mind can't get it. So to make a judgment and say this person's mad, <laughs> I believe sometimes they are. But I also believe that there are th things about love that we don't understand very often. Um, the workings of God is... It, 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 it locates us in the presence of mysteries and you know, and sometimes we have to see that. I mean, we, we realize we're involved in a mystery and, and we have to struggle through it somehow. Even if it means we're tripping all the time. Anyway, any other thoughts on this moment? Just where, where this light comes from? Anybody else want to offer a, a thought? Fred, let me, I'm going to put you on the spot if I can. I, I thought you'd jump, but maybe... Um, my husband is sleeping. Uh-oh. Fred, I can't believe you haven't had meetings because I know I know how conscientious... I hope I'm not putting you unduly on the spot here, but I... It's fine. I actually have my hand up. Oh, sorry. Because <laughs> I, I, I know as a... I mean, you, you take your work seriously and working with people and you, you, you've often had meetings with people in groups and I know you're... It's been important for you to... Your, your word is, you know, think outside the box and... Get out. So I, I can't believe you haven't had a lot of moments like that. Do you want to offer any thoughts of your own on this? Well, I, speaking on behalf of the scientific community, <laughs> I, I give the Holy Spirit credit. And what I find amazing is that it can be a range of situations for some from something that's as simple as a child comes up to you and asks you a question about the solar system and you're sitting here thinking okay how can I answer that question on a level that's going to be fundamentally meaningful to them right all the way all the way to being on the 55th floor of the Sheraton Hilton negotiating a billion dollar deal <laughs> and you're trying to make sure that you're gonna do it right and in all cases you get that you get that illumination that says, man, why didn't I think of that before? And it can bring, it can run the gamut. But yeah. you know, I, yeah. I, I agree with Mark. I think God gives you gifts that allows you to do that. But at the same time, I've been in situations where I've run all the possibilities, and I just can't quite get my arms around it. You're in the midst of chaos, and all of a sudden, clarity comes. You know, out of nowhere and mm -hmm. it's like rock. Right. And uh, it, you know, it, it's got to be something other than just me. Yeah. Or or neurons going off in your neurosystem system or something like that. You know. Yeah. But somebody had to trigger those neurons. Yes. Yeah. Any other any other thoughts before we? Who just who is this? Somebody. Somebody. Sorry. I think somebody's asking for prayers and I'm not.
picking up this letter coming in. Um, let's let's go to. Um, let me see if I can and um, get us to the essence of the humanities, because um, I've got some major major questions here for all of us. Um, when the play, Aeschylus is such a master. I'm just stunned by what he does with language and the structure of this. You all got my outline, did you, where you saw the Greek outline, the way it unfolds? What I did was offer you the outline technically, the way, the way the Greeks would have conceived of an action unfolding. And it's important to see that because if you, if you think about it, what you watch is what one of the um, what to, one of the great achievements of Aeschylus's art is he took the drama when it was basically um, an engagement between a character and a chorus, you know, that simple, or a character and another, and he expanded it by increasing the number of characters on the stage and the chorus. So by increasing the number of characters, he gave, he gave a greater subtlety to differences so that we had ways of comparing one character to another. It just made it possible to look more subtly at a problem and see different facets. So his improvement in the drama was really important for everything that happened after it. And there's, there's not a question in my mind that everything that he did and that Sophocles did help form the philosophers, particularly Plato and Aristotle. They, there's no way they could have done their work without these dramas. It was the poets who saw these things first. So if you watch the, if you watch the, if you look at the play in terms of the, the structure unfolding, you're watching a character introduce a problem, complications entering, um, and then a tension between characters and in the middle of the play, it's interesting, I, I'm not sure that you would have picked it up. If you were reading carefully, you would have seen that in the exchanges between Athena, particularly in the chorus, the chorus keeps coming in with lines repeated. So you know that there's songs that are taking their place, a drama is unfolding, poetry keeps repeating itself. Because you're at a height of tension and, and things are reaching a pitch, and then they reach a denouement, there's a sense that things are coming together, a climax, and then a resolution. If you, we've talked about this before, but we're in the middle of a drama, so it's good to be reminded of. Remember that, and Aristotle, I think, is the one who saw it most deeply, all drama, good drama, implies rational resources, rationality to nature. That no matter what is going on, in nature, no matter what is going, no matter how bad, no matter how bad conflicts, reason will reassert itself. It will recover. In one way, it's it's an affirmation of a logos in nature. We, we're in all the in every work we've read, we've come into contact with a character who's losing it. Something happens. Um, um, some characters, some characters go bad. I mean, they go to hell. You know, Dante. But for the most part, in the works that we've been reading, no matter what happens to a character, no matter, no matter how much he goes off the rails, something in the action brings him back, and there's a restoration of an order. It's a, re, it's a way of reaffirming the presence of reason at work in the world. 
Boethius could not have made the argument that he did without this. I mean, I'm trusting that you know you are holding on to that now. So, so in this play, you you've got a, the technical unfolding of it, but I also gave you the the stages of the action. There's a problem, a complication is introduced. There's a crisis, it'll reach a pitch, and then there'll be a denouement, a pulling together, and a resolution. It's exactly what happens here. It's, in happen it's happened in every one of his plays. So it begins with the priestess of Apollo coming out and wanting to make a prayer that the offering that she will make that day will be special. She goes inside the cave, and lo and behold, she discovers Orestes with um, Apollo and Hermes on either side, and these furies. And she's so taken aback by the ugliness of these furies that she runs out horrified. So it's, it's just a, it's, it's a way of re-emphasizing how much beyond anything ordinary Orestes is dealing with. These are terrifying, horrifying kinds of creatures, okay? But in the beginning, I mean, he's going to such a master. Notice how he begins. I give first place of honor to my prayer to her. This is a very first page. Who the gods first prophesied the earth and next to Themis, who succeeded to her mother's place of prophecy. So runs the legend. In third succession, given by free consent, one by force, another titan daughter of earth was seated here. This was Phoebe. She gave birth to Apollo, who brings prophecy to us. Now, there's a whole mythology behind this, and it's too much to go into, but, but just consider this. The earth is feminine. It brings forth. That's why it's forever been looked at as feminine. Most of the early goddesses were feminine. Hera, Demeter, um, the earth. It's what's fecund. It, it, out, life comes out of it. Themis is next. And it's interesting that these are feminine figures in a world in which the Furies are feminine. They're, they're horrifying to look at. These are all feminine figures, Gaia. Themis is the image of, um, of an order to life. So from the earth, her daughter is Themis, who is an image of an order to life. It's almost like we're approaching a notion of a Logos. One of the images of Themis that everybody should be familiar with is of a, of a woman um, who's, who's got the scales of justice because she's weighing things. You know the image we have of the woman blindfolded? It's no accident that it's a woman because it means getting a hold of her emotions, being blind, so that she has to make a judgment that's impersonal. It can't be just a reflection of her emotions because the emotions so often are unreliable. Themis is an image of a way. It's like C.S. Lewis's image of the Tao, the way. There's an order, a way, a dignity to life. She images that. There's a proper way to do things. So out of the earth emerged this way, and out of it came Phoebe, the prophetess, and from her, Apollo, the sun. And it's from him that we receive light, illumination. So all of these images are images of the Imago Dei. They're images of Godhead. They're images of the divine in some aspect. And I, I want to say that. They did not believe in one God. <clears throat> but it's easy enough to reconcile our belief with theirs because if you look at their gods, they're, 
They're all images of the way God shows himself in different ways. In light, in darkness, in the fecundity of the earth, the fruitfulness of the earth, you know, whatever, wherever we're going to go. So she goes back inside and comes out terrified. And then we have Clytemnestra appearing and being outraged at um, these furies sleeping. She wants vengeance. So she's very much in keeping with the Clytemnestra we saw in the Libation Bears. She's holding a grudge. She wants vengeance. Um, there's a fury is almost not a strong enough word to describe her. On page 138, you would sleep then? And what use are you if you sleep? It's because of you that I go dishonored, thus among the rest of the dead. She can't get back enough. The vengeance is so strong. So <clears throat> if you set her against Themis, you see the difference. Themis would have wanted justice. Something that wasn't just given to passions for getting back. Clytemnestra wants revenge. Um, she's been hurt. Um, she won't get enough to satisfy her. But I'm driven in disgrace. I say to you that I'm charged with guilt most grave by these, and yet I suffered too horribly, and from those most dear. Yet none among the powers is angered for my sake that I was slaughtered. There's nothing that goes on that doesn't refer to her. <clears throat> Everything's in terms of her. Um, sorry. Um, what's interesting to me, just as a sort of side note here, when you, when you read this section in which Clytemnestra comes out and he tries to stir up these furies, the description of them is that they're whimpering, that they're sort of slowly coming out of sleep. You know, they'd rather just be asleep. They don't want to be roused. What's really interesting is if you look at the, the, spiritual world, if I can call it that for a moment, the demonic, if I could, the, the, the furies as they're sleeping, they're nothing next to Clytemnestra. It reminds me of the Ugolino episode in Dante, if you remember Ugolino eating on the feasting on Ruggiero, that when we get to Satan, Satan's impotent. He's arrested, he's <coughs> locked in ice. The real whore at the end of the divine or at the end of the inferno is human. It's what human beings do with evil that makes them so horrible. That when human beings go bad, it's almost as if you can't stop them. And if you set them next to the furies, if you look at them as images of this spiritual evil, um, they're almost nothing next to her. Too much sleep and no pity for my plight. I stand here, mother, here killed by Orestes. He's gone. <clears throat> they moan. <clears throat> they moan. You moan. You sleep. Get on your feet quickly, will you? What have you um, yet done except do to do evil? <clears throat> she goes on and on like that. It's at that point that Apollo um, speaks up and defends um, Orestes. And Apollo and the chorus engage each other in... In, a, in mutually um, accusing each other. Um, go to 142, 143. 
this is crucial for the, I think, for the whole play. Um, Apollo says, yes, it was not for you to come near this house. Remember, they've left Argos to go to the Temple of Apollo, and from there they're going to go to Athens. So Apollo's here, and he says, it was not for you to come to this house, Chorus, and yet we have our duty, was to do what we have done. In office, you sound forth your glorious privilege, the Chorus. This, to drive matricides out of their houses. Apollo, then, what if it be the woman and she kills her man? Chorus, such murder would not be the shedding of kindred blood. Because the chorus represents that fury that's directly attached to the blood and the blood price. If somebody in your family dies and you're linked by blood, you're the one most responsible for bringing justice about. Apollo says, You have made into a thing of no account, no place, the sworn faith of Zeus and of Hera, lady of consummations, and Cyprus, I think that's um, Aphrodite. By such argument is thrown away, maybe Athena, is thrown away outlawed, and yet the sweetest things in man's life come from her. For married love between man and woman is bigger than oaths, guarded by right of nature. If when such kill each other, you relent so as to not take vengeance, nor eye them in wrath, then I deny your manhunt of Orestes goes with right. I see that one cause moves you to strong rage, but on the other, clearly you are unmoved to act. Pallas Divine shall review the pleadings of this case. What's, what's Apollo saying to the Furies? This is really getting to the crux of the whole drama. The chorus, the Furies, stand for the bloodline and um, crimes committed against the bloodline. Um, Orestes killed his mother, so they're standing up for the bloodline. She was, according to them, um, she was wrongly killed. Apollo has said there's something greater. What's his argument? Is everybody following this? Life comes from her for married love between man and woman is bigger than oaths guarded by right of nature. If when such kill each other, you relent so as not to take vengeance nor eye them in wrath, then I deny your man, Hunter Verestes, goes with right. He has no right to, um, they have no right to claim what they're claiming here. I see that one cause moves you to strong rage, but on the other, Clearly, you're unmoved to act. Pallas Divine shall review the pleadings of this case. <clears throat> you get angry. You get angry when Orestes kills his mother, but you don't get angry enough when a wife kills her husband. What's the difference? What's, what's at issue here in the difference between a son taking the life of his mother that it directly involves the bloodline, and a wife killing her husband. It's a marriage. Yeah. 
the Furies, the chorus just get furious. They say he's not going to get away. And you know that what's going to happen right at this point is Apollo refers them to Athena and they're going to shift from Apollo's temple to Athens. So we're going to go there to see how you can mediate between these two claims. Apollo's the god of light. The Furies are the gods of the underworld, the darkness. They both represent things of the human psyche. That very often these things of light can come to us. And there are also these claims of the dark passions um, to answer a wrong, to not let wrongs be committed. Um, so there are these two conflicting, call it energies or forces in the human soul at odds with each other. And right now, there's no way to bring them together. Apollo's going to refer um, everything to. Athena, but I want to take a moment with here with what, what he's saying. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between the bloodline, say, between a son and a mother, son and a father, <coughs> son and a father, and a marriage? It's an important question for the whole play. Jeannie. You have anything on this? Can't between the sun. Can you hear me? Yeah, now I can. Between the son and and the mother, or the son and the father, that's to me that those are both a bloodline. Although it seems like the furies. I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not real clear on whether they are agreeing that the, there's the bloodline between the son and the father, too. But, um, but with a wife killing her husband, there's, that's not a, a bloodline, but it's, it's a marriage. It's an oath. To me, it seems like Apollo is saying to the Furies, that is even more important than the bloodline between the son and the mother because he doesn't say why, but I'm guessing maybe because it's a choice to make this promise, swear this oath to be married, and that that means that the husband and wife owe each other even a greater loyalty than a son owes to his mother. Because the son isn't choosing to be born of the mother. It just happens. And but husband and wife are choosing each other. Fred, yeah, Jean, uh, just wonderful comment, Jeannie. Fred, go ahead. I, I, Jeannie covered it pretty well. And to me, it, it's, it's kind of a the beginning of the, the change that takes place in the third play and we kind of moved from the old justice system where the bloodline was really the most important thing to kind of an all lives matter uh, type of philosophy in the justice system that ultimately when Athena begins to do her thing and, and starts to persuade the 
the, the chorus or the Furies, we, we see that ultimate move in justice from the old justice system to the new justice system. You know, in, in some ways, kind of like the Old Testament and the New Testament where Christ comes in and injects the element of love into that justice system. Fred, just... Not quite the same thing, but something, yeah, no, something but, similar in bringing that, that, that mercy element into the to the justice equation and and you know a, an equilibrium if you will that you know one one form of taking a life is no better or worse than another yeah yeah both of you are just I mean both of your remarks are so fine Fred you use the word love you know to as a way of describing a difference between Old Testament and New I, I, that to me is a much tougher question to go into because even the father says the first commandment love me more than anything but if you took love as the as the quality that you're using to distinguish the new from the old, can you distinguish love um, from all the other passions? Because um, love, I'm not sure how you're using that, so I want to ask if you can clear this up a little bit. According to St. Thomas, love is a passion. It belongs to one of the passions. But so is grudges and vengeance and getting back resentments. Those are all passions. So if you're talking about a shift from, the, from an old order, which is really what's happening, to a new, and you're using the word love, is there any way you can distinguish that as a passion from the passions of um, vindictiveness or wanting to hurt back because you've been wounded or rage or fury? How is love as a passion different from those? So what's, what's actually happening in the shift from an old order to this new in, ter in terms of a, passions? I think it's a, it's, in, in some cases, a, it's a broadness of focus when you look at the care and responsibility one person has for another and that it's broader than just the bloodline that it's you know it's equally the father and and the child as it is to the mother and the child or even to you know a, a third a third person that um that respect for life is 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 bigger than just the bloodline which was kind of the old justice focus and if, if you look at athena's arguments that she makes to convert the Furies, you see that broadening of one's perspective to include other things other than just that bloodline relationship. I don't know if that really answers your question or not. I mean, you look at, it's, it's a tough one. I mean, if you look at the passion of love versus the passion of hate or anger or, I mean, you, you see it today. I mean, more than ever before. I mean, people just are irrational with their emotion. Uh, this emotion is just running away with people now, and and that rationality of of focus on where that anger comes from, or why it's focused on one particular versus one particular person versus another, is just fundamentally flawed. Yeah. Anybody else? I've, I've got another question here. Doc, did you have a response to it? 
Anybody else before I, I'm anybody else? <clears throat> Fred Fred mentioned two words here, and I want to see if I can connect them to to help clear up this change that takes place from the old order to the new because it I mean he's that's that's such a faithful description of what's actually going on in the whole series from this old order in Argos and tribal and familial. Um, God the Father didn't, I, I put this in the notes if any of you looked at them, I'm, I'm, they're probably a little bit longer than I should have made them, but God the Father did not have to create. There was no necessity. He created as a free act of love. Um, Fred used the word reason, rationality, you know, that they're so irrational. I wonder if the difference, I mean, it seems to me that this is one of the things that's going on in this shift, um, that one of the things that distinguishes love from these other passions as, 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 a, as an act in itself is a quality of rationality that is far more impersonal than the other passions. Because if you look at Platonessa, she's not doing anything that, she, that isn't for herself. Her whole regard is for her. We, we always describe love as acting for the good of another, which assumes some intelligence, some rationality, that you know the good of another. Which means learning to get rid of yourself, to put yourself away. What Christ did, I mean, he brought the Father with him. I, 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 I'm, so, I'm always upset with this distinction between Old and New Testaments. There's only one God, and, and so much of what's gone in the modern world is treated as if somehow Christ is not the Son of the Father. There's only one God. Christ is the Son come down. So there are connections to be made between the Old Testament and New that I don't think we make enough. But the everything Christ did was for the Father, and he brings the Father with him. So there's an element of losing himself, holding on to the Father, doing something for the good of another. So it seems to me one of the qualities that makes love what it is, that's just that distinguishes it from the other passions is this I would I would use Fred's work that is this quality of rationality of being impersonal um, Zeus is impersonal and the, the, it's not an accident during the trial during the trial Apollo says you've got the greatest evidence you need in the presence of Athena herself because Athena was not born of a woman. She came directly out of Zeus's head. What did you say? Huh? Is everybody following? So, and she's the goddess of wisdom. Um, she, she is a fighter, but she came directly from Zeus's head. So she, she carries in her as, as the embodiment of love of wisdom that detached quality. If you watch her operate in all that she does with the Furies at the end, she brings that kind of... You remember, the Furies are ready to blow up all the time. I mean, I'm just I'm sort of working off of Fred's principle here, if you look at what's... If you watch what's going on politically today, I mean, you, you can't... You almost can't hear anything without hearing a note of hysteria. It's people are on the verge of rage, wanting... They want to commit violence all the time. So it just see, it seems to me that one of the things that it'll, 
<coughs> that Aeschylus is showing is that the shift from this old order <coughs> to this new is a movement away from this vindictive sense of justice to something close to love and a mercy. <coughs> I want to point to some passages when we get there. Athena is almost close to a mercy <coughs> in what she does. Um, and it brings the, the Furies to a point of blessedness. Humanities means the blessed ones. The Eucharist, the Humanities, the thankful, the blessings. Um, they're good. They, they, learning to turn that fury into a good is part of what he's doing. Remember, this is a man who served in many wars against the Persians. He had to fight against a people who wanted to enslave the Athenians. He knew what would happen. He has this extraordinary love of the human freedom, dignity, and the potential in human beings if, if they live under the right kind of government. So he's talking about very real human emotions, very real things, but he's also recognized a, a difference between a way of life that's committed to these justice, just pure justice, being, getting, giving back what's owed and more, being vindictive, vengeful, and taking that, um, those emotions, that wanting to get back, and turning them into blessings. <clears throat> everything about Boethius said, everything he did, was there is no bad fortune. God is in the world taking everything that's evil, turning it to good. So one of the principles that we've been seeing in all this ancient literature is dealing with these very human things and through suffering, bringing some good out of it instead of just letting it turn on itself, go inward so that it feeds on itself. Because what we've been watching in this, in this play is... Um, Generation after generation, they keep turning back in on themselves to repeat the same sin again and again. And he's, he's showing us there is a way out. It's, it's taking those emotions, but introducing into them an element of rationality that's impersonal, that doesn't make the self the reference of everything. Look at what they're doing to me. Look at what I've lost. Are you sleeping still? Get up. <clears throat> and the interesting thing, I, I, for me, part of the beauty of this play, they don't discount the fury. I, I think Athena is extraordinary. She's a voice of love and reason. So welcome mine. She doesn't dismiss the furies. She does everything to say you cannot ignore their cry, their agony. You don't want it to become what Clytemestra wants to make of it, but you cannot ignore this. They, they have their due... Her whole appeal is, we will give you your due. You will have your place. You cannot, you, your answer to these furies cannot be to dismiss them. Because if you do that, you're back in a black-white world, and you're back with the earlier generations again, doing the same thing again. So what's going on here is making a place with them, not dismissing them, um, not being above them, Athena is gracious, she's considerate, she's patient, um, she stays with them, she does everything she can to give them a place and still help them change. Fred, go ahead. Yes, to me there's, there's a lesson here that we could use today and that's that you, you couldn't, you know, Athena took the position 
because Apollo was trying to dictate to the Furies what they what they should believe, and it and it wasn't working. And it wasn't until Athena came in and used wisdom, for for lack of a better word, to convince them that there was a better way. And in the end, you know that that turned out to be truly a a better way and yep. the Furies became the Eumenides and they yep. had a totally different role yep. in society. To me, that's 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 the big issue today. I mean, you got yep. people out there trying to dictate to other people what they should believe as opposed to an acceptance that there's truly a difference in opinion. So how do we how do we find a compromise that's good for the country? Yeah. I, it seems to me there's a lesson there that we could we could use today. Yeah, no, I agree. It just if I can add another perspective, absolutely agree, Fred. Um, the church has been saying for the last 20 years in its ecumenical stance, people in the church need to get out and they need to engage instead of telling people how they're wrong. You know, church has got to listen. You have to learn, you have to learn to hear the problems of a person instead of telling them how wrong they are. Hear them. I mean, like Athena, give them their place, and and to 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 bring this home concretely to the works that we've done. Remember the Scarlet Letter, because I think it's a perfect illustration of what um, Fred's talking about. Remember at the beginning, the women were like the Furies. I mean, they they wanted Hester's head. One of them said they'd like to brand her head. The other one said she'd like to cut off her head. I mean, all of all of them were saying she's evil, she's bad, kill her. One of the things the book is showing us is that, um, is that those women, whether they know it or not, are in this black-white mindset. She's wrong. What we learn over the course is there's lots about themselves that they don't see, and there's lots about their minister that they don't see, that they're too self-righteous. They're too ready to condemn, and they don't see how they're cutting themselves off from something better. And I, I remember making this because it was a huge thing for me. The poet is the one who sees it. Hawthorne's the one who can see what those women are not seeing and present them as they are. He can help us see sides of Hester's character that they don't see. And he helps us see things of Dimsdale's character that they don't see. He's teaching us to see things and in a way that helps us to feel differently towards them. So it's a, to me it's a perfect illustration of what you're talking about and I think what exactly what Athena is doing that the most important one of the most important things is if you take the two abstractions the Furies have a right they have a ground there's an injury there they're exactly they, they are mere each the Furies and Apollo are mere reversal images of each other in whatever way you can say, as Fred did, you know, Apollo's trying to dictate this, you can say the same thing of the Furies. They're doing the same thing. If you look at it in society, you can watch people in those same extremes. Both of them are mere reverse images. All they do is turn it around. So they're not changing anything. If there's a change that's going to take place, it's got to be to bring those two things together. Aristotle is going to Aristotle, Boethius, is going to call that the mean. Portia named it. Think about what Portia does in that, in that courtroom. 
the whole problem that she faces is bringing these extremes, bringing law so that law has its cause. She can't take that law away from Shylock, but she's got to try to bring a wisdom that neither extreme can see. So, um, so I think what Fred's saying is pretty much going to the point. It's, we've been looking at it in you know so many of the works that we've been. Let me stop for a minute. Any other? I want to look at the end in the in the courtroom scene to to try to to try to make this a little bit more concrete. Any any other comments about what's going on between the? I have a question. Yeah, Mark. Here's before you do, question. sorry. Maybe it's a basic question. Everybody already knows. Go ahead. Yep. Um, I can't pronounce her name. Chris, whatever. Chris, whatever her name. Clytemnestra. Yeah, her name. Now, how in the world, and I grant it, this is fiction, it's a story, it's got to sound good for the people, blah, blah, I get that. How does she as a ghost all of a sudden have all this power to bring in the gods, to bring in the humanities, all these things? She's just a dead woman, who, you know. How does her ghost come back and have all this power, and Zeus has got to get involved, Pottle's got to get involved? It's like she's something special. I don't get that. Yeah, I don't but, get how just this normal lady yeah. who did some bad stuff, all of a sudden she's a ghost, and now everybody's got to get involved. That's a, a really good question. Anybody? I mean, does that happen in other Greek stuff? I mean, is this like a Greek well, thing? Well, wait, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to, if I can, close this down and open it up. I'm going to say it happens everywhere, every day of our lives. So it's not just Greek. I mean, you, you know that I wouldn't be doing this stuff if I didn't think it applied to us. But let me hold on. Any anybody want to respond to? Yeah. Carl, go ahead. It's the memory of the gods know who she was and what she did, and they remember her, and they decided what to do. It's through them that uh, her the history. What is it? We were talking about it earlier. What was it of her that caused them? To do that. You mean the bloodline? Yeah, the bloodline. The dripping blood. Okay. The, 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 the evil done against her because she was a slave. It was a she, she, I, I look at it as not that she was doing it. The gods were doing it on her behalf. Except I think that's a that's a division that I don't think the play warrants. Um, let me try to answer it this way, Mark, if, um, if nobody else is going to jump in here. If, um, let me take women who've had an abortion. Let me take somebody who's committed a murder. I know, we all know, that there are people who go to jail. We know this. Um, I mean, these are, so I'm, I'm not in a world of fiction. I, I believe that fiction shows us reality or I wouldn't be doing this. I would not be doing this. We know that there are people who go to jail committing murder and they go to jail and say if I got out I'd do it again. No guilt. Whether they change in prison or not I don't know. I mean some people, we know some people. We know that some people are demonic. We know that Christ exercised demons. That people can be possessed. Um, I, I myself happen to believe that possession takes graduated forms, that possessions can be subtle, they can be in the form of addictions, they can be vices, they can be pretty heavy. I mean, really, 
sex trade or they can become violent. It's another way of saying that I think all of us have a human weakness since the fall. We've inherited this. The Greeks had this extraordinary sensitivity to it. If a person's done something that's wrong, let it let it be an abortion. Let it be murder. Let, let, let's say it's a parent who is too violent with his kids or her kids. Let's say a mother abused her kids in some ways because women can do it in subtle ways. They don't have to be physically violent. But at some point in your life, you, you, it's like an awakening happens and you're overcome with guilt. I don't myself look at that as, as the God's present. That is not the God's. But, you, and you know from my own presentation of this work, that any wrong we do offends the divine order. So whatever form it takes in us will somehow involve the gods. Because we're not just offending each other. We're going, this is C.S. Lewis's argument, we're going against a way. That's, that's Old Testament. I'm going to say it's absolutely New Testament. Christ did nothing if he didn't bring justice to everything he did. Those were his words. Um, he came to fulfill every iota of the law. There's not two gods, there's one. There's one Father. He, he brought a divine love into the human order by, by becoming human himself. But when we commit a sin, it's not just a sin against each other. We're committing a, a sin against the way, the Tao, the, Themis. We're offending the gods. Our belief, I mean, this is certainly one of the beliefs that we've had from the beginning, is from the Iliad, from the Iliad, that, that there's a disorder, and one of our struggles here on earth is to bring ourselves back into a tune with God. Religion means religary, religary, retie. Religion means retying ourselves, connecting ourselves with God. The first order of business with us is we can go on straightening the world out forever. We'll never get it right if we don't straighten ourselves out with God. So whatever offense we do, we do against him. One of the effects of that, we know this, all psychologists, I mean, Carl's, Carl's world was right on. The Furies belong to the past. That's, that's who they identify, this past order. Whenever we've done something wrong, it's not just a memory. We carry that guilt in us. Everything in Freud says, we've got to go into therapy. Here, this is Freud. I mean, we might disagree with a lot. This is Freud. Wait, wait, wait. We did ask her. She was dead. Wait, wait. Oh, okay. Yeah, hold on. I'm getting there. Um, the, mem the memory's there. It's, but it's not in the past. It's of us now. So even, even if somebody did something 20 years ago, that person can still carry that guilt in that person. So it's not dead. That guilt, whatever that crime was, is still present and at work. All therapy is based on the premise of getting past repressions, denial, to get back to those things that we repressed so that we can acknowledge them and get free of them. It means going back and looking at awful things that are repressed, get them out in the open, admit them in so in one sense you can you can say you can say figuratively i'm going to say mark both figurative and literal the past doesn't die it's alive christ came into this world to answer the sins of the past i came to fulfill 
So very often people are, I mean, think about people in therapy who, who struggle, who feel like voices from the past are speaking. You know, we hear these cases where a woman can be, what, what they call multiple personalities. It's like a woman has got 10 people speaking to her. Um, and I, I know this for a fact. And half of those voices could be her mother. The voices of her mom haunting her, hearing her mother do things that she didn't, you know. So the past appears to us in a ghostly form. Hamlet is about his father coming to say, avenge my, you can say it's a ghost, what he's doing. I'm not, I'm not now trying to make an argument for ghosts. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, what I'm saying is the past is very often alive and present to us and overwhelming sometimes because of the nature of the sin. I just think it's really important here never to forget Orestes killed his mother and he's dealing with awful demons, the, the effects of that. I, I don't see anybody getting close to doing that and not being emotionally overwhelmed. Guilt, shame, hiding, um, give it whatever name you want. So, um, the, and, and uh, put it another way, I, I love this play and I love oh, Hamlet. I, you know, I love Hamlet and the ghost. The, the, the past keeps speaking to us. I've said this over and over and over again. The past keeps speaking to us. Do we hear it? Do we pay attention? Or do we repress it? Do we not? All therapy is supposed to go there and uncover it. So in one sense, we're talking about giving the past its due. If we've done something wrong, or call it karma, if we've done something wrong, um, have we answered it? Or, you know, if it's a serious wrong, um, does it speak to us? So giving the past its due, you can, you can dismiss. Um, you can also talk about it in terms of the past speaking or ghosts or... <clears throat> right now I'm trying to avoid ghosts. But I'm I'm glad to go there. I mean I'm, you know I I, I was just, I was just trying to figure out how it fit in the story. Yeah. Because it it just it just you had this grandiose thing going on with it just didn't I don't know maybe it's just fiction and have a nice day and I'm good with that. So. Except except remember this from the very beginning when we started the Iliad. In the ninth book of that in the ninth chapter of that book, when Agamemnon wants to give Achilles all these gifts, and the three men come offering a, t a ton, literally a ton. And Achilles' words are, such gift, such honors a thing I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. And one of the breakthrough moments in that book is that we understand that um, there's this transcendent aspect to man's soul. And when you do something against the gods and it's become endemic, because you've got two cultures killing each other out of a false sense of honor, you're offending the gods. In fact, the gods come in and war about it. There's no offense that men commit that doesn't, in some ways, offense the god. Why did Christ come down? So that even though you talk about this you know, great machinery, in some sense it's meant to be a visualization through the imagination, of something real going on between man and what he does with other men and the gods, the divine order. You know, we live in a scientific world, overly literalist. It's like we're cut off in this world in our, you know, although all, almost all fiction today in Hollywood constantly brings in Transformers, 
CG tsunami. I mean, anything but God to, to try to show there's some disproportion between what goes on in our life and the effects of it. It, it bothers the modern mind when, when somebody seems to suffer consequences that seem disproportionate to the thing he did. The, the critics will say, but the consequences are disproportionate. I mean, they just, I, Fargo, we've talked about Fargo because I think that's probably the best picture I've ever seen on it. But at, that's because you think you're in a limited world and you can make these connections and that's it. If, if you acknowledge or believe that, that what humans do relates to a divine order, then a lot will go on that human beings don't see. We live in a, a certain modern mindset that redu it's reductive. It, it does away with this stuff. So we go through life like it's not there, and then we read a play like this and think, what the, what the hell's going on? Um, they're, they're, either there's nothing going on because there's no gods there, or there, there are gods there and we don't see them or pay attention to them enough and one of the values of reading this literature is learning to see there's a hell of a lot more going on to our life than very often we see. Let me stop. Well, I was trying to get out, at least a lot of what I think you're saying. Clytemnestra was not a good person. She did bad things. <laughs> she did bad things. The gods remembered that she did bad things. The gods retaliated. That's, that's, that was my thought process on it, and I think that's that was trying to address what Mark said. Yeah. And I don't know if it did, but I don't see that a whole lot different than what you say about establishing that um, bad behavior is recognized by the gods, our God, whatever you believe in, and that that moves forward. Yeah. If you don't believe that, you can't. You know, you can't. <laughs> You can't rationalize a lot of other positions about that. Let me start. I want to get to the mark. Just to, if I can top this off, Clytemnestra to me is like an image out of Dante's Inferno. If you go back into Dante's Inferno, you remember all the people are dead. The, we believe in the afterlife; people are still alive. When Dante, so when so when we watch Clytemnestra, when I watch her, she's like a figure out of hell. Um, it's it, she did bad things. The the. The problem is, she won't let go of them. You know, she's still saying, "Why are you sleeping? Get up!" You know, look, um, look at the way they've done to me. She's like Francesca. She wants everybody to feel sorry for her, to get angry, to do. She she really belongs to that infernal world where she will not let go, and she's trapped there. Um, Aeschylus doesn't believe in the inferno. He's not in a Christian world, but he there's nothing he didn't. There's almost nothing he didn't understand about that world. Clytemnestra is an image of somebody in the afterlife who's not let go of those things, who has an effect in this world. She's like an image of a memory, something from the past, still present to a human being. I, I'm going to speak for myself. I know that there are things I look back on um, in my past. <laughs> I mean, they leave me with shame. Um, I, I do not want to go to my death saying, oh, get back at her, do this, or, you know, I mean, people sometimes get stuck there. Clytemnestra is like a figure who's, who's an image of something that belongs to the underworld. She's dead. 
that still has an effect because of that. I, I can put it one last way and then I want to stop because I, I don't want to labor this too much. We learn from Dante. We learn from most of the things that we've, we've read. We learn from the Old Testament and New Testament. We know this from Christ, that there is in each one of us a tendency to be self-critical, to be self-accusing. We continue to accuse. Christ came in to said, let that past go. We can't live in what before or what's ahead. We have to live now and live what he did. If we live in the past, we, we, we live in ghosts. If we're living in the future, we're living for something not yet. All the, all the writers we've been reading are saying, if we're following Christ, it's to live in the now. Um, all of us, or, or a lot of us, carry these self-accusing voices, and they can hold on to us. Well, and every, but every, in the end, you're, you die and you get judged. You have to. You have to give an account. Let me finish so, my. Let me. Let me finish my thought. So um, we go to confession to admit those in the belief that in that moment we are forgiven. So whatever account we have facing, we. In some sense, we face it then. That's that's what an atonement me, one with. So in that moment, otherwise, the, what's the point of a confession? It's to let go of those accusing voices, to put them to rest, to learn to live with Christ now in the presence. But Fred, go ahead, just a minute. Now I, I, I want to get to the end because we got to look at Athena with the. I I just wanted to ask this question, and if you want to defer it. Till later, that that's fine. But what Aeschylus did with the the chorus in in this trilogy, I thought was kind of fascinating. I mean, we 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 start off in Agamemnon, and it's kind of the classic old world chorus. It's just it's the elders, so they're just observing. It's not really neat. It's a passive role. It's kind of educating the audience as you go along, and then in the libation bearers it actually becomes participatory. Yep. And it actually kind of directs us to feel less sympathy toward Clymenestra by the the um, slight, slight women. And so it, it becomes participatory. And then in the third book, uh, it's actually a player. I mean, it's the Furies. Right, right. And it, and, it, and it just draws us right in and kind yep. of Helps us focus, I guess, on that that big event and what you know what Aeschylus is ultimately trying to get us to pull out of the play. Yeah, I, I was just curious. I don't I don't recall in any of the other plays that we've done in the ancient world anyway where that's kind of happened. And I was just curious, you know, what your thoughts on that were. But I mean, if you want to defer until later, that's fine. But no. I just kind of like to hear what you what you think about that, or maybe I'm just making something out no, of nothing. no 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 I think I think your remark is really bright it's just brilliant um, no I mean I, I can't add anything to it Fred I think you're right on um, the only and I, I think you're probably already there so I'm probably wasting my time saying it you're not going to find this in Sophocles you're not going to find it in Euripides um, you'll find it actually you'll find it in in uh, Pentheus it's one of the characters referred to here He's a man who. This is this is one. I think one of the most important play. We won't do it, but in the um, 
I can't even remember the, but Pentheus, what's the play? The Bacchae. In Euripides, the Bacchae, the, the chorus becomes like these women. They tear this man apart because this man, he's like literally, Dionysius. Literally, hmm? literally tear him apart. Yeah, he's like the, um, he's like Dionysius. He's, he's doing exactly what you do. He is so in his head, he cannot get out, he will not get out of his head. He lives in abstractions. And his, his, the attitude that he brings of this black-white simplistic view to the world that is ultimately contemptuous of women because women live in their bodies. It, it's almost predating the incarnation that, that women are the fecund, they're the ones of the world. So the dark side of it can be the Furies. But the light side, he, he, he couldn't have done it without Aeschylus. So men tend to live in abstraction. And very often they can do that at the expense of the body, the, the female, the woman. He gets torn apart by the women. So there's a, a chorus that's like the chorus here that, that, that ravage him, just literally tear him apart. But I think, I think your comment's right on. What's interesting to me is that we don't, we've lost this tragic view exactly when it was maturing and, and Christ comes into the world to me in a, in a way that, that um, talking, get down. Um, that sort of answers all of this stuff. Um, what's interesting to me, I, I don't want to take the time with it, but I, I can't believe you haven't already gone there, is what Eliot does with it at Murther Cathedral. Um, I mean, you've, you've touched a, a point here. It's the, in some sense, the chorus gets replaced by characters. So the only comment I've got is that the function in the ancient world was like a common sense that the civic-minded people... Eliot did this with murder. If you look at what's going on in the world and look at public-minded people, public-minded people are not going to risk themselves to do what Achilles or Odysseus or Orestes or Hamlet or Dimitri. You know, all of those figures we've been looking at represent this sort of figure who bears these burdens because the rest of the civil, the, in, in the modern world, in, in, in Melville, in Moby Dick, and in uh, Hawthorne, when a public becomes respectable, they become more concerned about holding on to what they have than risking it. And we've seen that. The danger of that is they become enabling. That sins get hidden, it gets passed on, so I, I can't add anything more except to see that there was this sense that there was this common complicity because it, most people don't want to risk. And in every work that we've read, there are all, always these individuals who sort of, either they're wounded seriously enough that they have to do something or for whatever reason, but they stand out. <coughs> That, that theme gets assimilated into a whole action involving other people. So by, let's just say by the time of Moby Dick or, or Faulkner's The Town. You've got all these people. I mean, now you, you, know, you can see it. The respectability is at work. You know, nobody's doing something, but Mink does something. Gavin and Ratliff want to save him. Um, nobody much liked Mink because he's a criminal. He's going to kill a guy but he stands outside of that respectable world. 
So if you watch Achilles, or I mean, uh, Aeschylus work with this chorus idea, the chorus in the beginning represents the civic common sense view, passive watching aware, but it doesn't step into that darkness. And in, after Christ comes, he asks everybody to step into that darkness. That everybody is, is called to somehow go to him. So the choric voice is moving towards a becoming a character. And, and the whole notion of respectability or the civic like-mindedness gets moved into the whole action with people. I mean, I, I can't add anything because I, I think your, your, your observation was right on, just absolutely right on. Um, Christ comes to sort of dismantle it, you know, to call everybody out of it. But it's still there. It's always been. It's been there in, in every work. Dostoevsky's Brothers, Moby Dick, Hawthorne. Because most people are taken by the world. They don't risk bearing these. Because every almost every work we've dealt with deals with somebody who's doing something that involves something beyond. You know, and it puts them it puts them at odds with their world. Um, so we've been looking at that contrast from the beginning. It doesn't make strains in the family any easier. It increases them. It makes them harder. It makes marriages bear more. That's why marriages and families are struggling so much today. Sorry, Fred, I can't add more. I mean, I think your comment was just bright. I mean, right on. You couldn't, couldn't say any better than that. Um... I did want to do this. I really wanted to look at the... I don't want to press our time. Um, let me do this. I, I'm going to put this off. Um, we're, going to, we're going to do Sophocles, Oedipus Rex. It's a very simple play. And we're only going to give one class to each play because I, I don't want to lay... I want to, get, I want to get to our modern world and see if we can finish up this work we're doing together. But... Let me just ask this, and then I'm going to, when we start on uh, next week, I'm going to come back to the ending before we start Oedipus Rex. I want to spend a little bit of time just reading the passages. I, I don't want to rush through these passages. I want, I want you to hear Athena, and I want you to hear the Furies, um, and, but we'll do Oedipus Rex next week. It's a simpler play, and, and I think we can deal with it more directly. But here's my question. The Furies and Athena go back and forth, Apollo. There's a, a genuine debate. Ag, you know the word agon. That was a Greek word, agon, agony from conflict. The center of every Greek play had an agon, an agony, a battle. And the battle here is largely spiritual. It involves a human act that immediately involved a divine order. This, that's been the issue through the whole thing. The gods were involved in asking Agamemnon to sacrifice his daughter. Clytemnestra is the one who steps out of that because she's the one who kills for herself. She's not obeying the gods. Um, Orestes presents a special problem because he's acting once again under the inspiration of a god. So right at the heart of this play is this involvement of the gods in human affairs what they're asking of human beings. 
at the end these this agon reaches a pitch um, and Athena asks the uh, brings in 11 jur 10, 10 jurors to decide the case and you know that there's going to be a tie and that's actually going to be one of the bargaining points for her because when she decide when she casts the deciding vote she tells the furies when they say we've lost and they start crying bitterly they're, they're just bitter they're bitter with their defeat because they're right back where they were they they're ignored they're they're being demeaned they're being degraded um, she says you didn't lose you know the 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 city was divided so that's a sign of the support that you have it's another indication that there's something to be said for the for the cause that you bring what's what's owed to you but she cast the deciding vote so what I'd like to do I'm really sorry for the lateness of this I just don't know what to do but next week I'm gonna go on really early again so if there's a problem I can have it settled before we start here but here's the question that I'm gonna ask I, I want to look at some of the debating points what was the fundamental issue here at the end how does how, how do the Furies put it? Um, what's Athena's answer? I'm asking this with as much serious as, as seriousness as I can. I'm aware that there are there are present in our culture large segments of our culture that want that look at the past as representative of dead white males. They want to do everything they can to get rid of this literature. Um, it's utopian, it's looking to another world, and the world, the, the nature of that world is to get rid of statues, anything old, anything bad, anything, you know, any, anything that doesn't meet up to their standards. It reminds me of the Puritans in Scarlet Letter. Here we've got this issue that's brought to a pitch. I just want to be clear. So the question I'm asking, what's, what's at issue? Let's get clear on it. And what is Athena saying by bringing um, her voice to it? Remember, she's a woman. She's the goddess of wisdom. She's feminine. She's not masculine. I've been making this point for years now. Men do stupid things. They get in their head in abstraction. They either get in their head in abstractions or they use force, their physical force. And we've been watching that play out in so much of the literature. She's not a man. She's the one who stayed with Achilles. She's the one who stayed with Odysseus. Her counterpart, Venus, is the one who stayed with Aeneas. Here we're visiting her again, and she's the one staying by, coming to Orestes' defense. <clears throat> but she's dealing with this situation. I thought Fred's description of it was really, was really right on a while ago. What does she do? How does she do it? And the, the graver question I'm asking is, what does it produce in this city? In, in, in what way is Athens different from Argos? When we get to Oedipus Rex next week, Oedipus is going to be the king of Thebes. I want everybody to hear this really clearly. He's going to be the king of Thebes. Thebes and Argos were two of the great heroic cities of the ancient world. 
when we read the second play, the last play, Epistolonus, we're going to move to Athens. <clears throat> Either these men were political bigots, or they saw that something was going on in Athens that made Athens different from Sparta, Argos, Thebes, Babylon, Egypt. So something's going on here that in directly involves the way we look at each other as human beings. And one of the things that Athena says is, and the, and the Furies say the same thing. They say, we will do everything we can to protect your city so that men and women and the city will never be the same. That it comes under the protection of the gods. That the gods are going to look at Athens as if Athens is doing something that makes it more careful of the gods than any other city in the world. Argos, Thieves, Sparta, Babylon, you name it. So next week when we meet, I'd, I'd like us to pull both of those things together. What's it saying about the city? Take a look at the modern city, what's going on politically in our world today, in what moderns want to do with the city, and set it against Athens. What is Aeschylus showing us about the relationship between these disorders in the human person, the importance of the city, not the family, the city in answering those disorders, and the role of the gods in doing that? In the Jewish world, we're left in the family, in the Old Testament. If you've got disorders, they all belong to the family. In this work, all of the disorders came from the family. They just keep getting passed on. The answer to those disorders involves the city, a, a large community around, and the gods. What is Aeschylus showing us about the way we deal with our disorders and the importance of the city and the gods in our lives? Okay? I'd like to focus on that just to finish up our work on uh, your style. Any comments? I'm sorry to cut it short like this. I'm really sorry. I was hoping if we, we need another 15 minutes and we lost it at the beginning. Jolie, you have any comments or? You know, um, not today, but someday. Not someday. You're, you're almost always... I mean, I know you're always here whether you're talking or not, but often you have you have things to say, and I'm, I think we're all glad for them. Well, I had I had just um, put it on the chat that um, that when when Samuel um, you know had a had that idea or, or heard that still small voice, um, he was able to get corroboration from Eli that it's not me. God's wanting you to do something, telling yeah. him that you're listening. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so yeah, yeah. With the idea of corroboration, um, I find that that continues. I was thinking, and I put it on the chat specifically of First Thessalonians when Paul says, "You know, there's a lot of people getting these lights and these inspirations and these prophecies out there. So how do you know who to listen to?" And um, he just said, "Test everything." And um, reject good what doesn't work, yeah, and hold on to what is good and what's corroborated. Yeah. So that, so I thought those two 
stories, and I couldn't remember who it was who looked for God in the wind and in the fire and in the water. I think it was Elisha. And there was Elisha and found him yeah. in that still small voice. Right. So I thought, right. I thought those those were had a common thread yeah. of um, having corroboration yeah. to uh, just to back go, up your inspiration. To go along with what you're saying, it, at the towards the end of Corinthians, Paul had some very critical things to say of the Corinthians in what he called this excessive enthusiasm. It's like they were all speaking in tongues. He, he warned them off against that. I mean, he, he, there's some pretty strong warnings against that at the end of Corinthians. Um, just another way of looking at what you're, another thing that he's aware of um, that's religious. I mean, these people are deeply religious, but but he's, he's cautioning them against getting too far off in tongues and, and using, to go back to Fred's words, rationality that, you know, in your words, test things out and Boy, you guys yeah. are sharp. Motion you guys are sharp. You guys are sharp. Okay, Julie, your hand is up. Sorry, Julie, you've got something. No, no I'm, I'm not. I'm fine. Okay. Well, bless your souls, you guys. Um, we'll finish the Orstein. Just, just, I want to take 15 minutes to go through passages. We'll do Oedipus Rex. I think everybody knows the story. It's a classic. And I, I think what I'll do is just briefly go through the plot and then ask some basic questions because the whole modern age has turned Oedipal after Freud because of what he did with you know Oedipus Rex. So it's very much a part of our psyche. Well, we. I'd like to just... I'm going to ask some questions to to see if you come up with the same conclusions that Freud did or... You know that so many people seem to come up with today. Anyway, I think we can do it. We'll do Oedipus in one in one class, and then we'll do Oedipus at Colonus, and that will. God, I can't believe it. That really will round out our um, work in the ancient world. When we do that, I'd like to do Shakespeare's King Lear and Pericles. King Lear is probably the most painful play in all of Shakespeare. It is it is extraordinary. It, it's, the suffering is unlike anything else in Shakespeare. Anthony and Cleopatra come close. And Pericles is sacramental. It involves what I would call something sacramental in life. So we'll do those two works and then we'll finish on something modern. Okay, um, it's good to see you guys. Um, keep us in your prayers, would you please? Each other, keep each other in your prayers, and um, we will do the same, okay? Yeah, if y'all have anything specific, please send it on. Francis, I saw you come and disappear. Are you still there? Gone. <laughs> just, no, nothing, just do something to take care of that friend of yours, would you please? Bye, you guys. Bye, you guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Dr. Bob. Wonderful, wonderful comments. Wonderful comments, you. you guys, tonight. Stay safe, sir. Stay safe, everyone. Yep, yep. Dr. Bob? Yep. You heard that, big ears? Mm -hmm. They call me Dr. Bob. So it's students who call me forever. How was the movie? Good.
Was it? Mm-hmm. Was it really? You've not seen it before? No, I have. Oh, you have? But it's been a little while, so there were a couple parts where the other uh, dinosaur jumps out at people. You're so, so it's too frightening to watch before bedtime? No. <laughs> Was Is Michael okay? Is he going to go to bed okay? He's fine. I suppose you could. You want? Oh, God. I already brushed my teeth. Good. No, you, you're not going to have one anyway. These are mine. Um, so you guys want a story, I suppose. Okay, I'm coming. Got it. Yeah, I, uh, uh, I was like, I had an Oreo. I had the second Oreo in my hand. Yeah, what? I had an Oreo, one of those in mm. my hand. And she said, I should make you guys choose between Oreo and hot chocolate. So I ate the Oreo and I said hot chocolate. You like these? Mm-hmm. I like the lemon. I like all Oreos. Do you? Except the thin ones. I like those. Come on, you. Let's get you guys to bed. You got school tomorrow. Yep.